Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we talk about the transition away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use and regenerates natural systems. On today's episode, we're sharing some of our favourite examples of the circular economy in action. We'll be talking about headphones, t-shirts, carpets, whole buildings and much more. In this conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Laura Franco-Henau, and two guests who have plenty of experience in sharing circular economy stories. Nick Jeffries from our Insight and Analysis team, and our lead of our government and cities work, Ashima Sukdev. You'll hear Nick speaking first, and he's responding to a question he was asked, how does he communicate what a circular economy is? Yeah, well... Thank you for inviting me onto your onto your show. And yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I do love case examples. I think it's a wonderful way of turning something that's sort of theoretical or abstract into something much more relatable and real. So how do I start communicating the circular economy? Well, firstly, I sort of say that you know it, it is a great opportunity. It just makes uh, it makes sense on, for fundamental business reasons. And also when you sort of delve into it a little bit, it's a real driver of innovation. And then I'd, I'd hope to sort of quick, pretty quickly take an example to illustrate this, but also I'd hope to to sort of like sort of get the message that it's 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 more than about better recycling or better waste management. It's also it's about designing systems, products, and business models that gets us to what Seb just laid out. You know, eliminate the concept of waste, keep our stuff in use for longer, and 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 regenerate natural systems. So an example I might use is. Uh, a little company called Gerard Street uh, from the Netherlands, and they design and produce high-end headphones. Now, the headphone sector—it's a pretty—it's a pretty linear sector. It generates about 15 million kilos of of waste a year, mostly through sort of defective uh, materials and components, or and and also because you know te- technology advances. You know, last year's headphones are quickly sort of you know need need updating. And so therein lies the opportunity. And so what Gerard Street have done is they've designed their headphones to be modular, uh, very easy to take apart. And so using these sort of more circular design and introducing these business models, you know, in that way, you know, you can see benefits across the board. So customers basically get an affordable high-end headphone set. They get peace of mind against repairs and and FOMO. Um, Gerard Street they keep like because they keep ownership of the headphones they keep the materials and components in their sort of ecosystem in their supply chain and that means they protect them for the next generation of headphones and they estimate that actually going from one headphone set to another they can reuse about 85% of the materials and so this is yeah and and finally of course uh, the the environment and and the climate benefits because we need less materials and less energy to satisfy our musical cravings I love the um, sort of multi-layered nature of that story in the sense that once you start, when you look at a problem like headphones going to waste or the need to get new headphones all the time, you start to design something differently, maybe the product differently, so you can make it modular. And then you also have to start thinking about, well, how how does this operate as a business model fundamentally differently as well? So it quickly becomes um, a whole different system that sits around those headphones. 
<clears throat> Ash, we, we've introduced Nick as a bit of a case study king, but you are no less obsessed with Queen. case studies, I know. And exactly, yeah, you're you're very clearly someone who talks a lot to a lot of different people about, and, and you have to constantly come up with different examples of circle economy. So I know you've got loads of case studies and examples of circle economy in action up your sleeve to be used at any moment. Nick's given us an example of quite a high value product. I mean, 300, 300 euros is, is a decent amount of money for a lot of people. What about everyday products? Do we have any great examples there? Yeah, absolutely. And again, thanks for having me on. Um, so this example that I'm going to share is actually the one that I use when I'm talking to my mom and explaining <laughs> to her what exactly I do. Um, so if you think about kind of your everyday cleaning products, I have one over here, um, you'll actually no notice that um, if you think about it, the sort of a typical bottle of cleaner is about 90% water and then 10% of the actual good stuff and valuable ingredients. Um, products like this, you, I mean, we're getting through a lot of them these days. They're packaged and shipped in this sort of disposable plastic. They, I lug them home from the supermarket. Um, the bottles are used once and then chucked away. Um, we try and recycle them, but they often end up in landfill. Um, so in the US, for example, I think 35 billion plastic bottles are thrown away every year, which is pretty shocking. Um, so a great circular economy solution to this problem and a product um, at a pretty sort of simple level is called Replenish. Um, this is a company that has created actually a reusable bottle that you can refill with a concentrate um, and attach that to the, the reusable bottle. So the way that it works is that you buy the reusable bottle once um, from your shop or online, um, and then you purchase specifically the concentrate refills, which come in sort of a package about this big. Um, you attach that to the reusable bottle and then you fill up the bottle with water and voila, you have your cleaning product. And actually just one of those little refill pods um, can give you something like six bottles of cleaning material. So instead of me going to the shop and buying six different bottles, I can um, just buy one of those refill pods and keep um, sort of using the same um, bottle that I have. So this, this solution kind of results in a bottle that lasts longer. You're not throwing it away every time. Um, you avoid this very illogical need to transport water over great distances. And this refill system actually reduces energy, plastic waste, and carbon dioxide emissions by something like 80 to 90% um, compared to those one-off single-use bottles. Um, so it's a great, again, great value for money, great um, impact on the environment, um, reducing plastic waste, all of that good stuff. And easy to explain. <laughs> Thank you, us. I'm I'm hearing a lot of like uh, positive uh, economic and environmental benefits that both of your examples have um, from combining designing products in a way that they can be kept in use for longer, or that they can be easily turned into new products uh, at the end of their first use phase, um, as well as you know uh, offering them on a subscription subscription basis instead of um, owning them, but. It's also very important to take into account the social aspect and impact that um, these new uh, products can have. Uh, do you have an example of that, Ash? Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is actually one of my favorite examples to share at a sort of broader level. Um, I work a lot with city governments as well, and it involves uh, a city government, so it's a personal favorite. <laughs> so um, in terms of kind of 
again, going back to this e-waste problem that Nick sort of alluded to with headphones getting chucked in the bin all the time, um, computers, phones, all of this stuff that we're using for a little bit and then chucking away. Um, e-waste is a massive problem. There's a uh, Brazil's third largest city, which is Belo Horizonte, um, was facing a significant challenge with their e-waste um, going to landfill. They recognized that there was a lot of high value items in their e-waste and they wanted to um, solve that challenge essentially. And so um, they decided also to take more of a societal lens to this challenge and not just think about it as an environmental problem, but see if they could incorporate some societal benefits into it as well. Um, so they, um, as a city government, set up a, what, a, a series of um, centers for computer reconditioning. So they would collect a lot of old computers, again, which are very high value items that were piling up in landfills otherwise. Um, they brought them into these uh, centers for computer reconditioning, and they actually trained young, vulnerable people who didn't have jobs otherwise on how to actually recondition and remanufacture these computers and turn them into um, products that could be used again. Those computers that they reconditioned were then given to public libraries, schools, um, anyone essentially that needed um, computers and didn't have access to them. So again, this this these these centers were helping just digital inclusion of low-income groups and people that didn't have access to computers otherwise. Um, so this is a great example of like tackling e-waste, um, skills training for young and vulnerable people, and digital inclusion all in one fantastic circular economy solution. Um, just going through some of the numbers, there was, I think, 7,000 IT products restored in the first nine years of the program, um, 15,000 kilograms every year of post-use electronics diverted from landfill, and then more than 10,000 people that were benefiting from the training and digital inclusion. Um, and I think one of the things that, that really struck me about this is that it's not, this is a program that's not just about keeping products and materials in use for longer. It's also supporting the city government's priorities around digital inclusion and um, jobs and skills training. And it's being replicated across the country now, which is great. What, what makes, uh, you know, we've got these incredible things like phones and computers and we can't underestimate how incredibly powerful they are in terms of um, bringing greater prosperity whatever you know whatever however you define that to many people and including us um what makes them such a challenge from a kind of point of view of what happens to them after you know you mentioned that things like this you know tend to happen for a short period of time why is it that there's not that they sit in our drawers rather than because there's so much valuable things, so much valuable material on them, rather than actually being used again and again and again, or or something yeah. more beneficial happening to them. Um, there's a few things, and I'm sure Nick has more to add to this, but I think one is on the customer's end. Um, I'm I'm going through a massive clean out of our house at the moment, and. Um, even I, as someone that works in the space, I'm not exactly very clear about what to do with my old plug or, okay, I have a Mac for, that's from 2005 that my mom's somehow still using, but is Apple going to accept that again? Or should I be giving that to my local council? So there's a lot of confusion on like what to do with products once they're in the home. Um, there's a lot of confusion, there's sort of technical difficulties when, if I can get a manufacturer to take back my old laptop, even then there's technical dif 
difficulties around how do they actually take it apart and what can they reuse. Um, and that's where this design element really comes in is, and can you design a laptop so that it, once it goes back to the manufacturer, it can be easily taken apart. So I think there's a few things there that, that are going on in this, this chain um, that make it difficult to uh, kind of, yeah, solve for in a way. Yeah, I would agree with most of that. So yeah, design is is, is okay. crucial. And by the way, I promise not to use too many stats on 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 this show, but the e-waste thing was my 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 shocking but sort of opportunity highlighting stat of last year. Apparently, the global economy generates the equivalent of one hundred and twenty thousand jumbo jets in weight worth of e-waste every year now, and that has the same value as three times the output of all the silver mines in the world. So shocking on the one hand, but a massive opportunity on the other. You know, if you take a, a ton of e-waste, it's it has much, much more gold in it than a ton of gold ore. Yeah. yeah I think we had to invent a foundation rule for you, Nick, that only allowed to say so many stats only every one minute. Or two, or something one or two like a show. Yeah. Here's a stat for you, Nick. And and actually I don't know the precise right number. You will. So I welcome this one. An average drill is used only uh, only a few minutes in its whole lifetime. In fact, I know. Last time I heard this number, I thought, well, probably my drill hasn't even been used this much yet. Yeah. Um, these are not, another product similar to our e-waste e products that um, yeah. are massively underutilized but extremely valuable. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're alluding to one of my favourite um, uh, examples of a uh, of a of a sharing platform that has a whole load of positive unintended social consequences. Um, yeah, so the starting point for this this idea. Uh, was was DIY, DIY tools, they sit around doing nothing for most of the time. You know, the average drill is used for 13 minutes in its lifetime. In the case of yours, more like seven probably. Um, and so just think of all of the, you know, materials, resources, energy that have gone into that drill to be, to be used for less than 15 minutes. Uh, so, so why not consolidate those, uh, 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 like those tools into one central location and then allow people to access them in some way. Yeah, and so this was the, yeah, this is exactly the sort of foundation of the Toronto Tool Library. Um, they collected tools from the sort of community around these different hubs. And, uh, and then what they've got is like 7,000 tools now. And for roughly a dollar a week, uh, you can have access to those 7,000 tools. And more than that, because of the way, you know, the sort of the, the, the capital built up, they were able to buy things like, 3D printers, lathes, and all kinds of other tools. And so for your little subscription, your weekly subscription, you get access to, you know, a really wide range. But, so, sorry. Nick, it works exactly like a book library. It's a bit like a book library. Yeah, yeah. And actually, there's a nice book library angle to this uh, story. So what started off as a way of just keeping tools in use for longer or, 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 or increasing the utilization of tools actually then had a really, really great social, re well, had two real social revitalization impacts. So firstly, these tool libraries became more than tool libraries. They became maker spaces, places you can uh, exchange designs, uh, places where older designers can act as mentors to younger designers and teach them more skills. Yeah? So they became these real sort of social hubs. But secondly, um, the thing that constrains rolling out more tool libraries wasn't actually people you know, donating tools or whatever, or, or the demand for membership. It was actually real estate. There weren't any sort of buildings where they could locate it. 
And so the and so the, the tool library, uh, uh, the guys who sort of you know set it up, they started looking around for underutilized buildings, and their last tool library is located in a book library, because since the advent of the internet, you know they're, they're sort of less popular places to go, but by integrating these tool libraries into these book libraries, they're sort of breathing life, they're revitalizing these sort of dusty public buildings. So I like those, you know, that's, and, but that wasn't planned from the start, but it has, you know, like a lot of things in the circular economy, these, these lovely unintended consequences come out. Yeah, they have those amazing uh, unexpected consequences. And mm. I think it, it, it's a great example that could also be applied to other sectors. And I know we, we have examples perhaps with uh, toys for kids or, and children mm. um, that, you know, get, children get bored after you know a year or so um so you could easily borrow them from from and using this model and so far we've we've focused a lot on on business models um and design that uh, maximize the durability and the value of of the products um but surely even with our best intentions at some point um our products are no no longer useful um so what do we do then as Yeah, so I think a good example is um, T-shirts and clothing. Like we're all, I'm sure, as we go through um, our closets, often find kind of pretty worn out T-shirts or stuff that just it's time to let go off. So no matter how durable an item is designed, at some point it's time to kind of give it away or get rid of it. Um, and I think actually with T-shirts, There's, according to research by BBC Earth, I think three out of every five T-shirts bought today will end up in the bin within a year. So um, there's a lot of sort of clothing that is going to landfill, which is a problem. Um, so one exciting solution that's actually based on the Isle of Wight, which is where our organization is based, um, is called T-Mill. And um, every product that T-Mill designs is designed to be sent back to them when it's worn out or when I just decide that I no longer want to wear it. Um, and I actually have one here, which is great. I'm wearing one um, as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're all big fans. Um, but the great thing about this is that it's, again, it's designed to be sent back to T-Mill and when you're done with it, and it can then be recycled and continually turned into new t-shirts by them. Um, so the design accommodates recycled cotton and self um, printer ink that normally goes on to t-shirts. So there's a nice little polar bear on here. Um, is The, the, the ink that they use is sort of um, able to be removed quite easily. Uh, there's also, if I can find it, a little QR code right in the middle on the washing label here that um, actually tells you, you, you sort of scan that QR code, it gives you a postal label, I print that out and I can then send the garment back. And it also gives me a five pound credit towards my next purchase. So they've kind of designed the t-shirts, set up the entire model so that these t-shirts can kind of constantly be turned into new ones. Um, and that's kind of why we love them. And so when you said it's designed to be collected again by T-Mail, you're referring to that kind of inbuilt tech that just gives you yeah. the information, which is one of the prime challenges that, you know, for any, as you were kind of talking about, I guess, in the case of e-waste, for anyone who wants to take part in one of these systems, well, what do I do with this shirt? Where does it go? Um, you know, how, how, how can it be valuable again? Yeah. Nick, I know I actually had the chance to um, interview Serena Pozza from DSM Niagara recently, who is full, much like you, full of great nuggets about um, 
about well, they're, they're working on circular economy examples in action. I think you may have coined a new term, by the way. One, if people are inspired by this broadcast to explore our case studies, I will. Medium life bulky products is a case study we have, which kind of tries to capture this, what DSM Niagara do. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? MLBPs, yes. Um, yeah, I love I love DSM Niagara. Um, I love words as well, and Niagara a little bit clever because Niagara is again backwards. That's the origins of the word of, of the word Niagara. So all of DSM Niagara's work, rather like the, uh, the the work of the Foundation of Circular Economy, is is based on these three three very simple principles. The first is that all the products they design should be simple, like the minimum amount of materials. Secondly, no toxic chemicals, no toxic materials. And thirdly, if you have to have a connection, make sure it's reversible. And so based on these three principles, they set out to do, you know, to, to redesign some classic, classic linear products. And, and, and one of the ways they try to, you know, identify these classic linear products is they looked at landfill data and saw what the, the 10 most sort of, you know, popular landfill items are. And, and they quickly, and they pretty quickly uh, drill down on carpet tiles as being a classic uh, a linear product. So if we just look at uh, the US, the US uh, carpet industry produces about, well, enough carpet tiles to cover the island of Manhattan about 20 times. But at the end of their life, after about three or four years, um, those carpet tiles basically, you know, end up sort of pretty well three things. One, only 1% 1 of them get recycled into new carpet tiles, 5% get incinerated, and 90% end up on, on landfill. So about 2 billion kilos of carpet tiles ends up on landfill every, in the US every year. So why is this? There are a number of reasons. The main ones are, firstly, carpet tiles are like, they're a cocktail of about 100 or 200 chemicals, a lot of them quite nasty. Secondly, um, the base layer, so the bit which contacts the ground, and the uh, surface layer, which you walk on, they're made of very different materials, and they're also quite very, very difficult to prise apart. So what uh, DSM Yag have done is they've designed a 100% recyclable carpet tile. And how they've done this is they've either used very just pure one material, polyester, but they played around with the sort of the structure of the polyester. And so you've got like a sort of different characteristic polyester on the top and bottom. Or they've just had a very simple mix. So they've had polyester mi mixed with, say, wool. But in the second instance, where you've got those two simple materials, they've got a reversible adhesive uh, to, to separate them. So the end result is that any discarded tiles can become the feedstock for new carpet tiles. And so therefore, you're, you're decoupling the production of carpet tiles from virgin material inputs. And this is really important because this is like the foundation pretty well of the circular economy, yeah? How can we have an economy that decouples economic activity from you know, the consumption of finite material, materials? And I think DSM Niaga illustrate that in a really, really great way. I mean, that fact about the amount of materials in carpets, such a simple product, almost one of those things that just exists around you without you really thinking about it very often um until you need to change it i guess um but it's, it's, it's you know it's 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 almost mind-blowing how I, i've never heard before anyone describe it as a cocktail of materials in a carpet but it's an apt description actually when you think about the actual number of 
of things that go into it. And, and obviously, um, fascinating what uh, DSM of DSM Niagara have been doing in terms of innovating with that what is seemingly a very basic product, but is ripe for clearly ripe for disruption. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that is important to say about all of the examples that we are sharing here is that really this is the start of a journey. Um, and it's a start of a journey based on a set of principles, the, the three things are design out waste and pollution, keep products materials in use, regenerate natural systems. Um, and and what that, you know, because often what we, you know, what will be happening, maybe even in the comments section of this live broadcast, maybe not, but maybe um, will be people will be starting to look for weaknesses in these examples, which is a great, great to be critical, great to critique. But I think the important thing to say is that we are looking for a sense of direction and a vision versus suggesting that these this is the way everything will be in 10 years time all the carpets will be designed exactly the way niagara are doing them now um we're, we're we're continuing to innovate um and with that said nick um and we are now moving towards the some of our later examples what is i'm fascinated to think about even something even bigger even bigger than carpets what do carpets sit in they sit in buildings um and i know you've got a great example up your sleeve about how uh, a very large system is being innovated with in the context of the built environment. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about the built environment recently, um, and it's because of a few, few, few reasons. Firstly, the built environment is in the buildings. Let's say they, the number of buildings expanding like really rapidly. There was a report out recently by Arab that says uh, that estimates that every week a building area equivalent to size of um, of Paris is rolled out uh, each year, oh, so each week yeah, around the world. Now, the built environment buildings of all the economic sectors, they probably have the well, they do have the highest material usage, and also they generate the most waste. And this, and then the corollary of this is large economic losses and um, and, and high carbon emissions. So there are there are many ways of that you could apply circularity uh, to the built environment, and I guess the, the sort of you know the key aims of doing that are we want to you know make sure our buildings last longer, uh, make sure they're easy to take apart, uh, uh, make sure that uh, that uh, that they operate more effectively, uh, and so it's this last point uh, that I think is that, that, that I'd like to sort of use an example to illustrate. So aircon, aircon. Aircon is a is a is a is a massively growing sector. You know, uh, as as we become more urbanised, as we become more affluent, uh, we need we have we use more aircon, and it's a real wicked problem as well because the more aircon we use, the warmer our cities become. So the more aircon you need. Um, so the thing about aircon is uh, it's not it's not uh, buildings are designed to use a certain amount of energy associated with their aircon. But actually, when they're in operation, they use much more. So a company from Singapore called Care, who traditionally sold aircon units, decided to actually, instead of selling units, like, why don't we just sell cooling? And so they approached their new clients and say, look, instead of buying a unit of us, tell us what temperature you want your rooms. And then Care come in, they design the system, they install the system, they operate the system. And uh, they, they do that using their expertise because they know all about air cons, air con, uh, systems, but they also use like emerging technologies such as uh, good analytics and, and AI. And combining these things, like the minimum they've reduced air con usage is by 30%, but in some cases they reduce it by 70%. So, uh, sorry, energy associated with air con usage. And so, and then that translates into cost savings 
and then you can just split the cost savings uh, between care and the building owner. But I just want to make two observations, personal observations, on, on this case. And that's, firstly, we need to move to a low-carbon world that's run on renewable energy. And having things like aircon as a service, which reduces building energy demand, lowers the threshold of energy demand that allows or makes renewable energy more viable. And they demonstrate, Care have demonstrated this really beautifully in a, uh, on a business park near Mumbai, where they run the whole business park, or they cool the whole business park, four or five big buildings, just using the solar panels on one central building. So they've, they, they've done it. But my second observation is a bit more, so it's, it's kind of a note of caution. So like, we didn't always have aircon. Like in the 30s, I think in the 30s in the US, it started expanding. Originally, it was just used for factories and things like factories and abattoirs. But we've become used to using aircon. And like, you know, most architects and building designers build their building or design their buildings assuming you'll have aircon. But actually, for thousands of years, we cooled our buildings passively using things like building orientation, wind, um, uh, choice of materials. So my point is, as well as sort of increasing more business models like aircon as a service, we need to resurrect some of those old design approaches so buildings can rely more on renewable inputs rather than having sort of active energy inputs. Thanks, Nick, for that great overview of all the benefits and, and, and the impact that indoor cooling has today in our buildings, um, especially in countries that have uh, pretty extreme temperatures. Um, what about uh, material recovery and reutilization? Um, as, because I guess that a lot, of, uh, a lot of materials and energy are involved in, in creating a building. Um, do we have any examples of this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think the a good example is in the city of Venlo in the Netherlands. It's a small city. Um, the city government, again, was looking to build their new city hall. Um, and as a government, they had a significant commitment to circular economy. And so they wanted to see how many circular economy principles they could bring into and apply to this new city hall. Um, so definitely when they thought about the materials going into this new building, um, they wanted to track um, exactly what materials were going into the building, into the walls, into the infrastructure, um, so that uh, when, when, I mean, 20, 30, 50 years down the line, if there's elements that need to be fixed or taken down or deconstructed, um, there's like a written digital material passport that you can refer to and say, hey, we have um, X tons of steel here that can be sold to someone else who can then reuse them. So you know exactly what's going into the building. Um, the, the material choices you're making when you're making that building um, are looking at healthy materials. So they're not this kind of cocktail of random uh, materials that Nick uh, referenced as well. It's it's kind of these more pure materials that you can then take back and turn into other buildings and turn into other things. Um, so they use that element definitely in the city hall, um, but they also did all sorts of other great stuff. So carpets, um, the way that they used energy, uh, rainwater that was collected on the roof was then used in wash basins and in pantries, pantry water and so on, and flushing toilets. Um, 
the furniture that they had in the building and what was being used by the employees were all um, in sort of a buy and buy back arrangement. So anytime a chair broke or something, it wasn't just chucked away, it was sent back to the manufacturers who would send um, either repair it and send it back or send a, a new one. And um, one of my favorite things about the building is that um, there's this living facade. You you see these kind of green walls all the time um, on buildings now, but this one had more than a hundred plant varieties, which actually were improving the air quality outside the building. Um, so the green facade was absorbing, I think, 30% of sulfur and nitrogen oxides in the air um, and sort of improving the air quality around the building for a 500 meter radius, which is incredible. And mm. this sort of illustrates the regenerative side of the circular economy. Um, and then lastly, for the city government, it was a great investment and a very smart investment on their part because... Um, alongside all the productivity, health, environmental benefits, um, the project's also forecast to deliver a 12.5% return on investment by 2040. So that sort of business case is um, solid as well. For me, the example of Venlo and its regenerative properties hints at the fact that we've perhaps not managed to cover the whole picture in today's episode. Indeed, we often talk about the circular economy being illustrated as two distinct cycles. Technical, i.e. human-made things that need to stay in use through reuse, repair and remanufacturing loops for as long as possible. And biological, where the nature of the circular economy and the way in which things cycle is fundamentally different. Next week, we're bringing Nick Jeffries back onto this podcast with another special guest, to talk about that part of the circular economy in depth. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.